people like me who might read it are like, okay, we've done high school. We did all the boring parts. I did homework. I did exams. But now I just kind of want to read about murder set amongst teens. And I want to see them figuring it out because I like to think I would have solved a murder back then. Welcome to the Boundless Book Club. From the Emirates Literature Foundation in Dubai, this is the podcast that always aims to bring you book recommendations that will have you reaching for the heart, crying, and laughing while crying emojis in no time. Today, we're talking about some of the greatest hits of Bookstagram and BookTok. And if you are unfamiliar with those terms, stay tuned. All will be explained. I am Annabelle. And I am Andrea. And we also have with us Nivia Sorrell. And joining us soon is a YA superstar, social media sensation, and one of New York Times' youngest best-selling authors, the one and only Chloe Gong. But first, we recently published a white paper looking at the big trends in literature today, and we found that social media has had a huge impact on YouTube, see BookTube, on TikTok, see BookTok, And on Instagram, take a look at Bookstagram. There are literary communities on every social platform, and particularly for younger people, they are serious challengers to traditional book reviews. So we spoke about this on a podcast a few episodes ago, and we'll link to that. But today we'll be talking about some of the books that are blowing up on the socials. And I want to start with you, Nivea. What have you got to recommend to us today? So the book I'm talking about is One of Us is Lying by Karen McManus. Uh, It's a YA thriller, I guess. um, And it follows four different high school students who were all in all in detention with another or a fifth high school student. And then when he passes away, all of them are suspects in his murder and they're trying to figure out which of them is responsible. And the novel kind of goes through each of their points of view and all the way till the end where it's revealed who done it. Is this The Breakfast Club, but with murder? It is. And that's what I keep calling it. It's like The Breakfast Club meets Pretty Little Liars because through it all, um, someone is mysteriously posting on social media and it might be the murderer. And so it's like revealing their secrets. It's revealing the secrets of other students, of the dead student. And so it keeps spinning out like that. And they don't know if they can trust each other or like if their secrets are coming out. It's so good. Who is the, who is the main protagonist? There's no, there's four of them. They're four different students. There's Bronwyn, Simon, Nate, Cooper, and Addie. And then Simon is the student who like passes away. And he's the one who kind of runs like a Tumblr that's all about the secrets for their high school. And so when he, like when, even after he passes, someone keeps posting and it's all these like secrets and revelations and stuff. And so they're trying to figure out who that person is. I feel like you would know Nivea. Is Tumblr still a thing? Yeah, it kind of is. Like they changed a few things and then a lot of people went to Twitter, but now it's like a quieter place on there and people are still posting, but you kind of have to search for it. I don't know if this is just now, probably not because I know that we're both Buffy fans and that's full of teenagers that apparently do no homework whatsoever and just tackle very big issues. Um, But I just, I, I think sometimes I don't want to read these books because occasionally I just want a story set in a high school where they're at school 
and they actually have relatable lives. Well, I kind of have like two theories on it because like one of them is there are contemporary novels that kind of follow this and they are doing homework while also kind of dealing with their issues and stuff like that. But at the same time, I feel like one of the reasons people like older people who are not necessarily the young adult audience, like people like me who might read it are like, okay, we've done high school. We did all the boring parts. I did homework. I did exams. But now I just kind of want to read about murder set amongst teens. And I want to see them figuring it out because I like to think I would have solved a murder back then. Right. Should we go to should we go to you, Annabelle? Sure. So much happens. I really felt like this book needed a character sheet. So the book that I'm talking about is actually um, the first book that Chloe Gong wrote, which is These Violent Delights. It's the first in a duology, which already piqued my interest because two books instead of the traditional trilogy. Quite nice. Um, So the second book, Our Violent Ends, concludes the story. And I cannot wait to read that because this one ends on a really annoying cliffhanger. But, you know, she's doing her job as an author. So fair. Um, It's set in 1926 Shanghai. And there are two gangs, the Scarlet Gang and the White Flowers. And they hate each other. There's a blood feud raging. And if they step into one another's territory, it's a shoot on sight type situation. But what is interesting is how Chloe adds another layer of intrigue to all of this. Um, These gangs need the money and the trade from these French and British uh, foreigners, essentially, that are arriving in droves. But these foreigners, as you might expect, start to make themselves too much at home and they start carving up Shanghai territory for themselves until gradually there's kind of less and less for the Scarlet Gang and um, and the, um, the White Flowers, sorry. So meanwhile, you've also got communists that are a threat to both the gangs and the foreigners. There is so much tension. There's a lot of political intrigue and there's a lot of bloodshed. These Violent Delights is actually based on Romeo and Juliet. Um, so there's a lot of Shakespeare connections to the work that Chloe Gong um, writes. And who are Romeo and Juliet? So you've got the White Flowers run by the Montagov family. They speak Russian. Roma Montagov is the heir to the White Flowers. And Juliet Tsai, I think is the correct pronunciation, is our protagonist. She is heir to the Scarlet Gang. And at the time we're reading, I think Juliet is around 18 years old, but we find out early on that Juliet and Roma fell in love when they were 15. But what's interesting about this is they don't kind of dwell on the early burgeoning romance. They kind of dwell on what happened after that. There's a deep betrayal that is mentioned and you don't really find out what that is until you carry on reading, but they kind of hate each other at this point when you meet them in the book. Um, She went to America to become a flapper girl for a few years. And when the story begins, Juliet has essentially just returned from America and she's ready to take her place in the family business. And Roma and Juliet are all but spitting venom at each other, but in a way where you can tell they still want each other, you know. Um, And if that in itself wasn't enough, what I love about this book is the same thing that I know we briefly mentioned Buffy. um, What I loved about a lot of 90s sci-fi and fantasy TV shows. So at the heart of each episode or this story, there's a weird supernatural monster or big bad and it's wreaking havoc and it's up to the Scooby gang, which in this case is two rival gangs to figure out what's going on and, and save everyone. Um, and this big bad 
the book opens with a monster of some kind emerging from either the river or the sea and spreading what the characters begin to call the madness, where victims tear their own throats out with their bare hands. And what's causing it? You'll have to read the book to find out. A couple of things that I wanted to mention about this, giving you an idea of the plot and the characters. Yeah, there's a lot going on. It took me a while to get into the book. I think after a couple of chapters, I was invested and I thought, oh, big monster. That's, you know, scary and exciting. But this could be part and parcel of a genre that I don't tend to read very much in that there is a big, very different fantasy. Well, not necessarily fantasy, but there is there is a world that is very different that is established. And to set that up, it requires quite a bit of familiarizing yourself with a big cast of characters and it's also because she's taking her lead from Shakespeare and if we know anything about Shakespeare plays it's a lot of characters um but as you continue to read they do take shape they are memorable and you get completely sucked into the story but I think that's one thing I would just mention is if you start this and after a few pages you're like you know where is this going I don't really know where I am you just have to I think be a bit patient with it Oh, I was going to say, that's so interesting because my book was like so short and kind of breezy and was almost read in one sitting because she kept the chapters short kind of. So you're always on your toes and trying to figure it out. And it's interesting that even with like four shifting points of view, it didn't feel that long. But yeah, like so many characters would feel very dense as you're also trying to get through everything else with like without it, just a clear like we need to solve this kind of thing happening this one felt like that at once you once I got into it and and I think this is like I say it's just because I don't normally read the genre I I did have I wasn't sure about how this would go when I opened it because I don't know if you remember all of those tie-in Shakespeare inspired books that were written by a variety of different authors a few years ago I think Margaret Atwood did one called Hagseed and Ian McEwen did one called Nutshell. And there was a, Yo Nesba did a Macbeth where they took Shakespeare plays and they kind of modernized them and gave them a, a quirky twist. And they've done that with Jane Austen quite a bit as well. And I find that they're either done really well or really badly. And where they try and just kind of do a wink, wink, hint, hint, look how I have put this Shakespeare character into a modern setting, aren't I clever? It doesn't, it doesn't really work. Whereas when authors like Chloe completely make it their own and the Shakespeare references are, they take a back seat to the author's own story. I think it works really well. Like with um, uh, Jane Austen and Clueless, you know, that is an example of adapting something like that really well, where it's its own entity and it exists as a separate thing, it really doesn't feel like she's relying on Shakespeare to tell her story. What about you, Andrea? What did you bring to the table? So my book is actually, it's also a bit of a retelling of an old story, which I didn't know when I started reading it. So my book that I'm bringing you today has a hashtag with 5.3 million views on TikTok. It's called The Woven Kingdom by Tahiri Mafi who is, um, she's known and loved for the Shatter Me series, which I haven't read, but this is the first novel in a new series of magical fantasy. And from what I can tell, it's very different in both tone and style to anything she's done before. And if you, 
if you love seeing this region in your fiction, the world of this story, even though it's very much a, a sort of a fantasy book, it draws on old Persia in the Middle East, but with added magic and court intrigue and forbidden love. And unlike um, unlike uh, Chloe Gong's book, the cast of characters that are important in this book is very small, so that helps. Um, there are two main characters. There's Elise, who is a long-lost heir to an ancient Jinn kingdom, and she is hiding in the city as a servant. And then she's spotted by the crown prince, Kamran, in an altercation with a boy who tries to rob her, where she has no choice but to use her jinn powers. Um, and from that point, he cannot stop thinking about her and wondering about who she is. And this is very much a Cinderella retelling with all sorts of magic and stuff. There's even a ball in this. Um, so it kind of sneaks up on you how there's, it's so Cinderella. Um, and book talk is absolutely blowing up with people reacting to this novel. And in particular, the, the forbidden love part of it, which is really interesting because uh, Prince Kamran and Elise don't actually meet very often in this book. And the whole thing plays out in a very short um, time frame. I guess we'll find out more in the next book. But there's a there's a uh, the one bit that people are reacting to is where um, Prince Kamran says, "You have consumed my thoughts since the moment I met you." He said to her, "I feel now in your presence entirely strange. I think I might fetch you the moon if only to spare your tears again." And at that point, book talkers are dying. They are like crying, and Kamran is. Um, putting real-life boyfriends to shame and TikTok is not going to let you forget it and it's really funny. I love those reactions. It's so fun. Um, and people, people, uh, people love it. And it is, it is like a proper adventure story as well as a Cinderella story. And then obviously to, to reach the conclusion, we have to wait for the next book in the series. I actually had a question about um, these violent delights. So I know it's a Romeo and Juliet like retelling and everyone kind of famously knows how that story goes. Does it seem like it might go that way or do you think she's just like, no, we're just keeping the first part and then maybe. That's actually a great question because it's one of the reasons why it works, I think, is she uses the skeleton of the story and some of the key characters but she definitely ad-libs and you get a sense as a reader that she knows where she is going with the story. And it, it's in, I think it's probably interesting as a writer that she knows that as readers, we're going to have expectations, but that means that she can then subvert those expectations. So there's all these different ways you kind of, you think you know what's coming, but then you're also aware that she could just go in a completely different direction, which she does in a couple of places. And uh, that's that adds to the enjoyment. OK, yeah, because that's kind of like in one of us line, because you mentioned The Breakfast Club and I think she does evoke it a 
bit because she's like, okay, this character's clearly a jock. This one's kind of nerdy. This one, like, you know, they each, like, this one's kind of the one who gets into trouble a lot. And so you're like, okay. But then as you learn more about them, it is a bit like the Breakfast Club and that you're like, oh, everyone has layers. But it's not the layers you expect, which is kind of nice. We're like, okay, this is cool. Like, I like that you acknowledge that teenagers are different and yet the same in a way. Yeah, everyone has layers like onions. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because I was wondering when you made the Breakfast Club connection, if she does that, if she has the jock, she has the nerd, and if there's something that she does with that. Okay. Right, let's bring in Chloe Gong. Chloe, welcome to the Boundless Book Club. We are very excited to speak to you today. I am so excited to be here today. We know you've been very busy. These Violent Delights was published in 2020, then Our Violent Ends 2021, and then you have a whole raft of books in the pipeline. Do you think you could give us a quick overview of the books that are coming, both the YA and the adult fiction? Absolutely. Yeah, there is quite a lot in the pipeline that is <laughs> ready to explode out into the world. So there's Foul Lady Fortune, which is a spin-off series to These Violent Delights and Our Violent Ends that's coming this September. Uh, and then my adult debut is coming next year in June. Well, summer 2023. Maybe it'll move. We don't know. Publishing is very fickle like that. Uh, but from then on, every six months, it's either a YA release or an adult release. So it's keeping me on my toes. Oh my God, that's so hectic. I have to ask about your schedule. What's a typical day for you right now? Oh, a typical day. It, it really depends. Um, it depends on like what kind of pops up in and out of my schedule, because I think like being an author, the really great thing is that I get to be in control of when I do my work. Um, so when anything else that is pressing pops up, I'm like, OK, yes, let me squeeze that in and then I'll write around it. Uh, so what it usually looks like is that if, you know, I have a meeting pop up or I have someone who, you know, needs a chat or is like, let's go do this research thing. I'm like, okay, that gets jotted into my calendar as a solid event. And then all of my other free time, writing time. Also like, you know, chores and admin gets jammed in there sometimes. It's a surprise that I keep my apartment as tidy as it is. And by that, I mean, it's not that tidy, but you know, <laughs> any free time is when it happens, but a lot of, a lot of writing time. So are you super disciplined with your time when it's in between those calendar appointments? Is your foot on the accelerator on writing? I would say so. I think because I have grown up writing, it's one of those things where I am so familiar with my own process. And of course, with every book, it kind of changes a little, right? So there's nothing that I can really replicate, which, you know... That's kind of sad for me. I'm like, you know, you'd think by my 10th book, it would get really, really easy, but it's not. It changes every time. But the good thing about having, I guess, so much practice under my belt is that I know, okay, well, the way that I work is I have to know what I'm writing. Like, I have to have an outline. I have to have a very clear idea about what is going on in this chapter so that if I have all of these things, I know that if I sit down and I, you know, say, okay, I'm going to write for 30 minutes. I generally know how much work I'm going to produce in that time. I, I feel exhausted just listening to you. I'm in awe. Because <laughs> I mean, I, 
I read somewhere that you start, basically you started when you were 13, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I started very young. Um, not to say that when I did start, it was, you know, quality in any sense. It was very much like, you know how, like, <laughs> when you're younger and the types of stories that you tell are very much like once upon a time and then this was the most magical fairy in the world and then she saved the world and then everything was that that was like the stuff I was writing so very early but it was the type of like I was just having fun I wasn't like thinking I was you know novel writing or anything I've just finished reading these violent delights and took me on a journey <laughs> what was it about 1920 Shanghai and what is it about Shakespeare for you? Oh, two very good questions. I mean, these violent delights, I think, really took root in my head because of those two elements. Like I thought about 1920 Shanghai and I thought about a storyline that could retell Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and putting it together really felt like a concept that I was in love with enough to kind of pursue. Um, And the reason for that is because I have always been fascinated about 1920 Shanghai because it is the setting that, you know, people nowadays from Shanghai talk about a lot because it was perceived as this like golden age, right? There was just so much going on, but it was this era unlike anything that they had previously previously seen or, you know, once you go forward in the future, you kind of lose it as well. Um, but a lot of media that I grew up around that my parents were kind of watching in the background um, was set in this era. Because obviously, like, for Chinese mainland media, it is this big thing of fascination as well. And I was thinking, like, for me, I consume all of my media in English so wouldn't it be so cool if I was also to write something that kind of combined this like, you know, mixture of what was going on at that time as well, but for like, you know, almost that diaspora audience. Um, and then it felt right to kind of merge Shakespeare into it because Shakespeare is like, you know, the touchstone of like Western canonical literature. And then you're like, okay, well, what if we put it in Shanghai? Like, how does this mixture of like culture and world look like and how is that also kind of just a metaphor in general for like the immigrant reader or like these characters just muddled together in little cauldron of like themes and stuff I I think one of the things I loved what you did in terms of the Shakespeare and how you adapted it though was you definitely made it your own and you do deviate from from the original in like important ways how how did you find that? Was it easy for you to figure out what you wanted to keep and what you wanted to stray away from? Oh, it was very hard. Um, that was one of those things that got worked in in later drafts, I think. Like the first drop, it was pretty close to original Romeo and Juliet. Um, I definitely had to work out like what I wanted to keep and what I was, I guess what I was kind of including because I was like, oh, it's a retelling. Like I should include this versus what is, you know, thoughtfully included and makes sense for this new storyline that I'm kind of including and what doesn't make as much sense anymore. And I actually can take out. Uh, So in earlier drafts, there was a lot of, I guess, subplots that I put in because I was like, you know, the play had it, and this is the way that it plays homage to it. The more I worked with my editor, the more we kind of could discuss, like, does this make as much sense anymore if you've transplanted it from, you know, Verona into 1920 Shanghai? 
And if it doesn't, how can we adjust it to make it a bit more of your own thing? So we're actually, you know, taking into account the real history you're working with here, as opposed to redoing what Shakespeare did. That makes sense, especially what, having read it. It, I think that's something that you really pull off um, really well. Took a lot of drafts, so thank you. <laughs> I, I love the monster. I think the moment that I fell in love with the book was when you hit us with this this monster at the very beginning. I was like, yes, straight to it. Um, the big bad. I love it. Um, where did the inspiration for that come from? Oh, good question. It's the monster kind of arose as this like two prong inspiration thing. And by that, I mean, it initially came to life because of very practical reasons. I was looking at the story and I was thinking, I want a thread that is very big and that you can see because, you know, at the end of the day, like, People keep turning the book if there are stakes threatening the characters. And primarily, I was thinking, I don't want the blood feud to really be the stakes because Roma and Juliet have to work together in some way. And it's just not as interesting to me if they're just constantly, you know, grappling it out that way. Um, And then I was thinking, the history is very hard to make the stakes because it's very nuanced and quiet and like, slow until things happen right like that's just the way history works a lot of the time um so I thought okay we're gonna put in a monster because what is more threatening than a monster that you can't control running around killing people and then it was really fascinating because after I wrote the first draft I was actually taking an English class about monsters in film and literature and you know the I guess significance of why monsters keep appearing in our stories and our books and our movies and what it actually means and then my professor kind of was covering these things about like you know monsters are usually stand-ins for the other or stand-ins for a human fear then I went back to my draft and I went oh the monster hair is actually a stand-in for like the effects of colonization I see what I accidentally did and because I kind of clutched onto that a little I was like okay now in the revisions let's lean into that even more like I said to realize because there are these like smaller subplots about the harm that like colonization and imperialism is doing in this time period. But it's very hard to kind of draw that into a big explosive forefront, right? Because the damage of colonization is slow, sometimes unseeable. And sometimes it's very hard to pinpoint like the, you know, people's own contribution to it. If there are, you know, all of the, rise of capitalism and all of that happening at the same time, right? And so I thought, okay, if the monster is actually a metaphor, then we can kind of lean into, you know, who's responsible? Who does it target? What is its pathway through the city? And all of those then kind of came in to solidify it. So big answer. (laughs) I love hearing the backstory though. That's absolutely fascinating. It's a great answer. I'm so glad you asked that question. Alongside all the writing you're doing, you're also a prolific TikToker with um, 8.1 million likes as of this morning. How do you actually find the time for that? And what, what, do you, what draws you to that platform? I mean, I think I, I got on this platform at first because like everyone my age was on it. Like it, it's, I feel like it was just one of those like cultural things where, you know, this has taken 
this generation by storm and I'm like I'm gonna miss out if I'm not on it like that's just how I feel like that's just how like things like <laughs> draw you in right um but surprisingly I feel like because I've kind of gotten so used to like posting little bits and pieces of it it doesn't take as much out of my day as I think even I would personally assume because you know I try post once a day um because the algorithm hates it if you disappear for a long time and then you come back because then they're gonna be like I'm not gonna push your stuff anymore by posting once a day like usually it is quite low effort right like I find some audio that relates to anything that I'm thinking about and I'm like, mm, how do I, how do I make a post out of it? And sometimes it's like, you know, that moment when writing sucks and it's as simple as that. And I send it off. I film it in 10 seconds. I send it off. Uh, or it's like, I, you know, try to cover like my day to day, like, oh, I'm working on this right now. And I just film a little snippet that's on my screen. Um, and I send it off. So I try, I really do try not to put too much effort into it. Um, occasionally, like I do try to make a more um, effortful video, I guess, like I'll edit it or something. The thing about TikTok is sometimes I'll put effort into it and it completely flops. And I'm like, you know what? That was a waste of time. I'm going to stop doing that. <laughs> that makes sense. Before you joined us, as I mentioned earlier, we were talking about other books, well, books in general that are really big on social. And I'd love to get your top recommendation for a book that has come to you via social media. Oh, that's a really good question because I almost feel like every book I pick up is from social media. I mean, I guess... I guess that's not true. Like I do keep up within like the industry as well. Like what I have from, you know, other authors coming out, but um, before TikTok was a big thing, I was a Tumblr person, like to pick up all my reads and stuff. Uh, so, you know, back way yonder when I was the 15 year old fangirl, I say was as if it was in the past tense. Uh, <laughs> you, mostly present tense, but we'll, we'll pretend that I'm really cool now and I'll use past tense. Um, I really got into Cassandra Clare's The Model Instruments because of social media, um, because I was seeing people chatter about it and because it was that big, big boom of like YA uh, paranormal that was going on at that time. I really, really got into that series that way. Um, I feel like when The Cruel Prince was really big on social right before book talk also got onto it that was also how i found out about it and i really really got into it um what have i picked up because of tiktok oh the atlas six i decided to pick up because everyone was raving about it and it is so good so good <laughs> okay that's uh, another one for the tbr it just keeps growing. TBR is always ever growing. It's going to be how I die. I will be crushed by my TBR pile. Yeah. yeah. It'll just fall one day. And I'm okay with that. Good way to go. She had a good life. <laughs> well, that is all for today. Thank you so much, Chloe. If you want to know more about Chloe Gong's books, I'd recommend reading them or popping onto TikTok and looking at all the many fan videos. This is the last episode for a little while as we break for the summer, but we will be back again soon. In the meantime, perhaps you'd like to get some armchair travel advice, head to episode 10 from our first season or select new books for your TBR from the best books of 2021 episode. Links are in the show notes. Until next time, enjoy the books. Bye.